The book says that at some point, if you're successful, you will reach a growth phase. And then you're like, oh, my, this is what they meant. This is the growth phase. Oh, good. <laughs> what do I do now? I think risk is doing something that you don't want to do and hopes that you will like that. I think that's the biggest risk that a person can take in their lives. So I didn't realize this conversation would go into these topics. This is great. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Growth Mindset Podcast, your weekly dose of inspiration and exploration. Join me, your host, Sam Harris, as I discover how mindset can help you do incredible things through my conversations with the world's most interesting people, from tech billionaires to leading scientists, best-selling authors to notorious hackers. The goal is to increase our collective wisdom and attitudes to make us all happier and healthier, wiser and wealthier. Who doesn't want that? On the podcast today, we have Igor Volzanin or Volsenin, or we have Igor anyway, and he's really cool. He is the CEO of DataSign, a marketing technology company that uses customer insights to build personalized and emotionally relevant content to each customer's personality, which is uh, kind of scary and awesome. We talk through the issues that he's had starting a business and how he got people to work for him for free by spending his initial cash on a villa in Paris which is a, a really cool way to get people to work for you. And then we go into such things as why the more that you have, the less happy you become and how to fundamentally change your mindset. So just a really fascinating interview with a fascinating person. So what is not to like? So data sign helps businesses personalize the way they communicate with their customers. We do that by analyzing first party data that a business already has in their customer to create a personality profile. And then we provide automated recommendations for a platform to tailor content to make it more appealing to different personalities and businesses. Currently, a lot of them will just send out a single email to a million customers. And then what they're trying to do is just optimize the number of customers that buy the product rather than using that as an opportunity to enhance the relationship. So one thing is cutting down on spam. The second thing is actually delighting the customer. What have been the big kind of lessons or problems that have come up? There's been so many. I think it depends on the state. So at the early stages, it's finding the right co-founders and finding early customers and finding someone that will give you access to their data, someone who believes in you. It's always difficult to kind of do those things at the beginning. Then you get into a phase of okay, I have the right co-founders and I have some businesses. What am I building? What is the problem and what is the solution to that problem that we're actually building? So that's identifying that and then figuring out why you're so unique and kind of starting to talk about it that way is always quite difficult. And then you have the problem of actually paying for it all, finding investors, raising around. That's difficult. And then it becomes, well, how do I deal with my early employees? How much do I pay them? What kind of equity should they get? And when it's all kind of just new and exciting and there's like three of you, what happens then? So how do you go from three to six? Same thing with customers. Okay, so we've done one pilot project, but how do I actually turn this into a business? And how do we scale? And then it becomes, again, the issue of how do I raise more money to be able to scale faster, to go to more places and do more things? And then where do I find the talent to make it happen? A lot of things that all sound pretty important. Introduced. <laughs> Can you break down 
So how you found co-founders? So the original co-founder of the company, who's no longer with the company, Bogdan, we met while studying. He had left his job at Deutsche Bank to do a master's in cognition and computation. And I was just starting my PhD at the time. So we met through our supervisor. And we didn't necessarily know what we wanted to do, but we met and we thought, okay, let's do something together. And then we did that for about a year and a half. And then after a year, he had to go back feed his family and and so he left but at that point we had james and chris who were some of the earliest people to join the company who basically stepped up and became the de facto co-founders and who are now kind of full co-founders of the company so we so i've gone through that whole thing of finding a co-founder co-founder leaving finding new co-founders so during that first year neither one of us were super technical so we spent a very long time trying to find a technical co-founder but we kind of stumbled into it chris who's now our cto he came in through ucl cool i said as a graduate yeah so the way it happened was we were looking for a data scientist at the time so we couldn't really pay them yeah how do you solve that problem so yeah there's kind of stages here and i'm keep jumping back and forth but if we just take it chronologically we started the company in february of 2015 in june of 2015 we went to paris to do a hackathon and hosted by bnp paribas which was a bank and the whole call line of the hackathon was that they would basically provide you transactional data and you show them what you can do in 48 hours and we showed them what we could do with their data hypothetically and they liked it so we won the hackathon which they gave us about eight thousand euros and we used that money to rent out a flat in Paris. And the goal was 8,000 is not enough to be able to pay people. So what we're going to do is we were going to rent out a big flat and then we're going to invite all of our friends and family to come to Paris for as long as they can to help us build a prototype. And that's what we did. So a friend of mine from Canada flew in for a month. Another friend of mine came from Frankfurt for two weeks. The son of my co-founder flew in for weekends. And that's what we did. And that was quite fun. It was a really good time. We were just living in Paris, five people in a flat. The flat was fantastic. And and we were coding and going to the bank every day and trying to kind of create something. So that was the summer of 2015. Then a year later, so 2016, we got the full project from BNP Paribas and they paid us 50,000 euros. So that was our first revenue to basically come in and actually take the prototype and actually field test it and see whether personalization would drive engagement and try it on their actual customer base of lots of customers and so on. And we did that. And then at that point, we were able to pay a couple of people from that money to come. And we again rented out this time a mansion with like six bedrooms and a huge in the middle of Paris. And yeah, it was the same thing. It was great for two months months all the people flew in and then at that point we were also looking for data scientists and others to join us and that's how i met james essentially he came in and helped us with some of the data science stuff he was doing his masters at the time and then he said look i have this friend chris who is also doing the masters in machine learning with me from cl would you be interested in talking to him i think technically he's great and can help and then so we met chris and we really liked him and then james and chris became the co-founders thanks that's like a really nice way to start a business and <laughs> a really cool way to solve the problem of getting people to work you can't pay them 
Yeah, I think that was a lot of fun. It was a very unique time in, in data science history. I mean, I would recommend everybody do that. And it's a one way of using very little resources, but then getting people to, to kind of follow you along. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Thanks. Okay, and then how did you then go on to getting investment? Yeah, so investments. Well, we started pitching for our first 100K is what we thought we wanted. So once we won the hackathon, so that was 2015, we started looking for investments from angels here in London mostly. So we pitched to a couple of networks. I can't say that it was going anywhere very fast. People were still telling us that we were too early. They weren't sure what was happening, who's working on it, and, and so on and so forth. So we really took us until February of 2016 to get our first offer. And that was a term sheet. And I was looking at it recently. So the term sheet was for £40,000 with the condition that they would help us, but we have to raise at least 100. So they would help us raise another 60 and that they would take almost 15,000 of the 40 in monitoring fees and closing fees and oh, wow. in fees. So basically, they, for yeah, 20, we were giving up something like 10% of the company for essentially £25,000 check. <laughs> and so we turned it down and in hopes of getting into Techstars. And we had somebody who introduced us to Max Kelly, who was the managing director of Techstars in London at the time. And we, we spoke to Max in January and then we went through the whole interview process in April, May. And then we got into Techstars in for in June of 2016. And that was quite an important moment. So the Techstars provided us with 120,000 US as a seed investment. Plus we had revenue from BNP Paribas. And then we, uh, we had another project with a Belgian bank as well. So we had a bit of money to then give us essentially a one-year runway. So from June 2016 to June of 2017. So that was the first round, or the first money that we raised essentially into the company. Okay, cool, yeah, cool. So how do you build a business in terms of finding customers? We're a B2B business. For most of our history, we have focused on large enterprises. So financial institutions, we're now speaking to telecoms. So large kind of telecom carriers, we're speaking to large e-commerce and retailers and so on. At the same time, we're speaking to smaller companies and looking to bring our, uh, what we currently do for large businesses for, to smaller enterprises as well, especially the ones that use MailChimp and HubSpot, which by the way, if, if you are using, please get in touch with us. We are doing free trials at the moment when you get a lot of support from our psychologist and we're looking for some early pilots in that. But in terms of building it for enterprises, it's a very time-consuming business. I would imagine the most startups die because of the sales cycle. So you have to be very aware that let's say you're selling to banks. If you are speaking to them today, you will not close a contract even for a pilot within the next six months. You just not. And a lot of the time people will come in and say, look, I'm having all these conversations. The word conversation means you're at least six, probably 12 months away from a contract. As long as you know that and you're okay with that, then it becomes a bit different. Then the game becomes, okay, well, how do I survive long enough to be able to get to 12 months to actually close this contract and to actually do something with them? And so you sort of the mindset needs to change. It can't be like, okay, if I don't close this contract within three months, I'm dead. 
that means you're dead. It's okay, how do I live long enough for the next 12 months, maybe 18, just to be safe to actually close this contract? So that's one thing. And then the other thing is networking. It still remains the best way of getting early customers for us. Hey, do you know anybody who works for, let's say we sell to banks? Do you know anyone who works at Metro Bank, Lloyd's, RBS? Oh, yeah, I do. And my running joke is always everybody knows someone who works at a bank. <laughs> you ask anyone, and um, that is by far the best way. Also, the best way to do fundraising. No amount of cold calling or cold emailing will ever get you anywhere. We've tried that as well, but it's usually the networking that gets you the most interesting conversation. Cool. Thanks. Yeah, I definitely relate to both of those things. <laughs> that cycle will see for long. Yeah, so can you tell me a bit about, so you said you had to change your mindset then from the subject of growth mindset. I had to change my mindset a couple of times. So the first time I had to change my mindset when I had to become a real CEO. So go from a co-founder of a company and the guy who occupies the title of CEO just because there isn't anyone to actually becoming a CEO. That happened during Techstars and that happened around the time when my original co-founder was leaving. And then the second time in terms of growth, that started to happen early this year when we closed our seed round. So we raised about a million euros and I started having a lot more conversations and I started to see patterns. So that was really cool. Our investor, we have several, but one of them is a Russian VC called Sistema. It's fantastic investors and they support you. So they invited us and lined up seven or eight meetings. So essentially I had almost three meetings a day, every day for three days with exactly the right people in pretty much all the largest banks in Russia. And all of a sudden, when you do that, you start to see patterns. You start to see exactly who is your customer, what is their problem that you're solving, what kind of questions are they asking you, and you start to see kind of, okay, I can see how this is becoming, what the next steps are, what is the funnel, and all of that. So all of a sudden, it went from, okay, where we might have one conversation a week with some bank that somebody introduced us to, to this is becoming a funnel and people are actually interested and I could see how I could convert out of these seven, three into actual projects in the next three to six months and what do I need to do to get there? And then the question is, well, how do I replicate this? How do I get my seven meetings in every single country in Europe? And what do I need to achieve that? And then realizing that, okay, there's only so many banks. How do we then kind of go outside of financial services? How do we build our technology in a way that could use other data? And then it kind of starts to snowball, but it still takes a lot of time. And all of these things tend to happen unplanned. It's just all of a sudden you realize that you're in this phase. It's like mm. the book says that at some point, if you're successful, you will reach a growth phase. And then you're like, oh my, this is what they meant. This is the growth phase. Oh, good. <laughs> what do I do now? So then, then your mindset starts to change and the goals change for the company. So all of a sudden, it's not enough to get a pilot. It's not enough to have three pilots. It's not enough to have a license. It's all of a sudden you have to have a million in recurring revenue and then you have to have five and then you have to have 20. And as those goals change, your mind starts to think, okay, well, how do I actually get to 20 million from where I am today in annual recurring revenue? What is that I need to do? How many people do I have to hire? What do these people have to be doing on a daily basis for us to achieve this? And so your mind starts to expand away from how do I build this technology that does something to how do I actually hire 30 people every month for the next 12 months to, to build a sales force that is capable of delivering these returns. But I think everything comes at its own pace and its own time. And I think we've been lucky enough where we've been going through these phases 
quite consistently, but also that's the positive for the long sales cycle is that you normally have enough time to build out whatever it is that you're selling. Even if it's not built yet, normally if you have a long sales cycle, it means that by the time the project actually kicks off, you've had an extra six months to build your product mm -hmm. to meet the needs. So that meant that we actually had enough time for every phase to really kind of appreciate where we're at, try to find solutions for different problems and move at a good pace. Yes. So I was going to ask, what do you do in all that? time in the six month sales cycle when you get that conversation. As one of our early advisors always said, you always sell first and build later. Mm. He said the first thing they ever sold, it was two years before they actually built it. And I actually really like that. It sort of goes with the fake it till you make it attitude, but not quite because that kind of is important in its own right. But in the first instance, you have to have division and you are ultimately selling division in the early days. You are selling division of what could happen if this existed. And then the customer gets excited about the possibilities of that, buys it, and then thankfully, given that there is a long enough sales cycle, that gives you the opportunity to refine it and then to ultimately build it. While a bank takes a month and a half to do some weird due diligence on you where the company has existed for three months, so there's no due diligence to be done, yet somehow it still takes them a month and a half to do that, you are building your product. You are finding out what the pain points are and building that out. So it's almost in your favor if you can survive long enough. Mm, but what's so your, what is your favorite book? <laughs> The ones that I really like that run and the way I operate as a human being, one of them is the 33 Strategies of War, which I think is a fantastic book. It kind of goes through the different strategies you could use in war. And, and one of the best lines that I always remember is that when you are at your weakest, you have to appear your strongest. But when you're at your smallest, you have to appear your biggest. That goes into the fake it till you make it part of, <laughs> of running a startup, but it clearly applies to war as well. So that can be a bad advice. And then for my personal growth and development has been The Way of the Superior Men, which I don't necessarily think is a great title of the book, but certainly has given me a lot of inspiration and guidance in life for personal, again, growth and development, which I think is important when you are running a tech startup or any business. Oh, yeah, I've never heard about that. I think, so, I mean, like that how to win friends and influence people. Mm -hmm. So, kind of a terrible title when you first read it. If you never, you're like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I don't. Actually, genius book. Yeah. Okay, yeah. it's cool. Thanks for looking forward to that. Oh, you just did cool. Your favorite quote. Uh, if I asked you what your earliest memory was, would you be able to tell me? In life? Yes. My earliest memory that comes to mind at the moment is I am. My parents mentioned this every once in a while. So I was about three years old. And whenever we would go out for a walk, I would grow up in Ukraine. My parents would try to take me to a playground, but instead we'd end up walking along a building, like an apartment complex. And then at the bottom, they always had these things that just open and close. I guess it's for sewage and, and things like that, for ventilation for the basement. And I would literally go to every single one of them, just open it, look inside and close it and go. So the entire hour that we were supposed to be playing on the playground, we would just make it down to the end of the block and then turn around, do the same thing as a payphone, pick up a receiver, say hello, and then walk back. The funny thing about memory is that for all I know, none of this ever existed, right? It's all made up. Yeah. The only thing I do remember is the phone receiver. I don't know why, but it was quite important to pick it up and say hello. Who knows? It sounds kind of like you know, when you have a dream and something's really important and then like the next thing you wake up like, why did I need to give a banana to my nan? I mean, it made no sense, <laughs> but it needed to be done. It just, it was really important to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think 
what I always remember when I was at that age, I think I need to remember this for when I have kids, is that everything I was doing was important. It was never random. It looked random to other people who didn't understand your internal logic. But to me, it was always very consistent as to why I said things, why I did things. And so I think people who just think or, or feel like children are stupid mm. and you just don't get them. I don't think they are. I think internally, children are extremely smart and they still do things very coherently. It's just makes sense well maybe only to them to do and i like that i think that's what makes us unique and life kind of slowly but surely beats that out of us as we get older and then we start to do things that make sense to everybody else around you maybe that's one of the most important things i learned during the startup is that basically everything will be okay in the end so it's like you're thinking this is super important i really need to do this and then it doesn't happen and then like the day after yeah. something else happens and then you're thinking oh well that wasn't so bad and so things are never as bad as you imagine them to be when they do happen yeah yeah it's funny it does help you take much bigger risks when you realize like hey you can put your all in risk everything in terms of what you think is everything but actually it's still kind of fine yeah you, you'll be fine in the end and i've always recommended people to kind of go i mean we have fear of being homeless i think a lot of people feel like well if i quit my job and things don't go well then i'll just end up on the street but actually very very few people end up on the street i've always encouraged people especially younger, if you can, mid-20s, to pursue your dreams and try doing things that you love, but that may not lead to success and see where they actually end you up. And I would be very surprised if chasing your dreams, you end up actually sleeping in the park. On the subject of risks, what is the biggest risk you take? Yeah, I was hoping you'd ask that. And I will tell you this, that I don't feel like anything I've done in the last five years was a risk. I think people around me would look at that and say that I'm either delusional or crazy, but I never saw anything, my personal background story in this is that five years ago, there's absolutely nothing on this planet that I'd rather be doing today. And well, how is this a risk? I am learning, I am doing the thing that I love, and that's it. <laughs> there's nothing else to it. I think risk is doing something that you don't want to do and hopes that you will like that. Yeah. I think that's the biggest risk that a person can take in their lives. Okay, but what are you worried about doing? Well, the future of the world. I guess there's a couple of things. My personal worries, I think we're destroying the planet. So I am very worried about what will be left for my children. I'm not even sure there's any point in thinking about their grandchildren because I don't think even my children will have anything left. I'm very worried about income inequality in the world. I'm extremely worried about the fact that the wealthy own so much of the wealth and the poor own so little. And I think that we're seeing some of the consequences of that already. And I'm also very worried about the fact that people seem to be very angry. I had an interesting conversation with, it was the first billionaire I spoke to ever. So that was kind of cool on its own, right? Because uh, I don't usually speak to billionaires. But basically, we had a, an hour long conversation about politics. So his biggest worry was that Americans have lost optimism, that it was always a country that despite everything felt like tomorrow will be a better day than mm -hmm. it is today. And they don't feel that way anymore. My worry is slightly different. A lot of the things that we seem to be doing comes out of anger. It's not a positive reaction. It's hatred and anger. 
okay, maybe I can have it, but neither can you. And so I'm going to sabotage. And I think anger, it's a very easy emotion to spread around. It's very contagious. And you're seeing that with Brexit, you see that with Trump, you see that with a lot of the right wing messages. It's like, we are tired, we are hungry, we're poor, we're angry, we're going to do this. I mean, with the latest Supreme Court justice, he was just angry. He was just a, he was ranting. And some have pointed out that as a white, privileged male, he should be the last person to be ranting. There's others who should be ranting more, but the people are angry. And I think that's what concerns me the most. Why do you think people are angry? I think there's a couple of things. Personally, I think that the model that we have built out over the last 50 years of what it means to be prosperous and how you achieve that has not lived up to its expectations. So there was an understanding that if you study hard enough, that if you go to a good university, then you will have a good job. And that was definition of success. And that was fine. And I think that worked very well in the post-World War II world where the alternative was fighting and huge instability and death. But as we've moved away from that, I don't think that model really works anymore. And so people are becoming disappointed by the fact that they seemingly done everything right. They went to the good school. They married when they were supposed to. They got their 2.5 children and two cars and a house. And yet they're not happy. That hasn't made them fulfilled. And I think they're angry. And in some cases, they haven't even gotten the job. They haven't got the 2.5 cars and children. And they're angry because their expectations were not fulfilled. Filled. And I understand that completely. And the world is changing. There is increasingly this automation. So there's less jobs, especially for unskilled workers. There is less paths to victory. And again, going back to the first point about income inequality and all that, the system has built out a winner take all mentality where your self worth, we're increasingly measuring our self worth by the size of our bank account. There isn't any other yardsticks. How do I know that I'm smarter than you? Well, I have more money in my bank account. How do I know that I am better than you? Then, you know, it's because I have more money or I have a bigger house. And again, worked in the past, but now bigger houses don't make us happier. And that, I think, is creating a lot of problems because you just can't buy a bigger house that makes you angry. You bought a bigger house and it didn't make you happy. You're still angry. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely focusing on like vanity metrics instead of like sanity metrics or something that's useful for you. To me, it's amazing, right? The statistics that whatever quarter of U.S. population is on antidepressants and we're fatter than we've ever been and all of these things. I think that all of that is making us unhappy. Yeah, mental health is definitely been taking a huge dive which seems ridiculous when the world is better than it's ever been but i think like you alluded to when you talked about it post wars and when the alternative was going back into war everyone's pretty happy with just not being like <laughs> kind of like perhaps killing each other yeah. like i was in north korea this year and everyone was quite happy because they weren't starving and then they're like really nice and <laughs> It's like a bad thing to say, but they're grateful. Whereas we just grew up saying, oh, you can have everything, everything's fine. And then you don't get everything instantly. And you can only compare yourself to people that are doing better than you. And they're on social media, having what seems like the time of their lives. Yeah. And you're like, oh, well, my life's kind of shit compared to everything else I can see around me. There's a classic photo or cliche of international development where you have a teenager with the latest iPhone who's super unhappy because the phone maybe you know is only an 8 and not an X or whatever. And then you have a child with a soccer ball in India who is smiling from ear to ear because they have a soccer ball and it's just the happiest day of their life because before that they were kicking rocks right they were playing football yeah. 
with rocks. And then, of course, you know, as a development agency or a person, you come in and you're trying to lift them up so that every child in India can be as unhappy as a teenager <laughs> because they'll finally be able to oh, afford an iPhone. God. And that's a big dilemma in development. Yeah. Always. I really like that analogy. Yeah, I spent a month living in Tasmanian woods with hippies without any technology and I'm so happy all the time. Like, <laughs> never had like a distraction <laughs> device that's made me feel shit about things and not like look other people in the eyes. You just always present and nice. Sure. <laughs> what is the kindest thing anyone has done for you? I think for me, the kindest thing a person can do is open up and tell me about themselves and really tell me not necessarily what their problems are and all these kind of things, but really kind of have a heart-to-heart conversation about the things that matter to them the most. I think that is the kindest thing one could ever do to another individual and to really let them into their world. Okay, cool. How do people get better at doing that? Well, it starts with you. So I didn't realize this conversation would go into these topics. This is great. (laughs) But one of the things that I noticed is that as I started to change and as I started to open up to people, they open up to me. I think it starts with us. So if you want the world to be a certain place, you have to start acting as if it is. And then it will slowly start to conform to that. And And I think that's true. So for me, it's been getting over my fear that people will not understand me or if they get to know me, they will reject me. And to really kind of very quickly be able to talk about very intimate and and deep things. And that's what I've seen. I mean, that probably goes back to the why people are unhappy. We've moved into this world of, and I don't like blaming social media for everything because I think social media is a reflection of, if people didn't miss, it's hard to, you don't really want to be like whiny and complaining. (laughs) That's it, right? Like everybody wants to put their best food forward and say that their days are going great, but they don't. And sometimes things are good, sometimes things are bad. And being able to share that with people I think is really important so one of the things that I've been actively trying to do is whenever I meet a new person I will talk about very intimate things about my life that are happening and I'm happy to explore and explain things that I'm dealing with or that I have been dealing with my whole life or whatever it might be very quickly and that tends to create intimacy very quickly there's a book on vulnerability that I read a while back that talked about the power of vulnerability I think it's the most powerful thing that we have actually and if you can learn to be vulnerable vulnerable. It opens up an entirely different dimension of being, but also different dimension of connecting to people. And I think that's extremely important. Cool. All right. Thanks so much. Is there anything else you wanted me to ask you or topics to go into? I actually wanted to go to North Korea. So one of the things that I wanted to do for a while is to take a car trip from Lisbon to Tokyo. So that's been a long trip. big dream of mine to do for a very long time. But one of the areas that what I would want to go in would be North Korea. So how was North Korea? Uh, it was really nice. It's really clean and basically no one really drives anywhere. So the road's pretty empty and everyone cycles or walks. So great place to go cycle touring. <laughs> Like probably one of the best in the world. And yeah, they're really interesting people and they obviously don't get to see a lot of tourists so mm-hmm. they're always really happy to see you. Did you nice. find it to be a welcoming place? Yeah, feel- yeah, mostly. There's obviously just the odd moments where like you're a bit worried that you're going to get arrested because you accidentally fold like a newspaper or something. Why would you get arrested for a fold? <laughs> it's illegal because it's very disrespectful because they, the leaders are like their gods yeah. and they also very strict about doing anything against them so if you fold a photo of the leader it's illegal and you can get sent to jail so if you fold a newspaper it's hugely disrespectful so they have to roll them in special things but obviously being a non-north korean <laughs> i would had the newspaper in my arm i swear tucked it under my arm folded it, it was like shit <laughs> like 
put it under a stack by the newspapers, ran out the shop before anyone saw me. <laughs> with like, oh, God. <laughs> I think it's okay. <laughs> but yeah, that was maybe the scary moment. Yeah, otherwise it's okay. Like the people are usually nice. If you do stupid things that you're obviously not allowed to be doing, that's bad. But same as like, you can go to a cliff, that's a perfectly nice experience. If you jump off a cliff, then yeah, that's really <laughs> stupid. It's kind of like being in North Korea, it's beautiful to be there and look at things. Yeah. Don't do the stupid, stupid stuff, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'd recommend going. Good, eventually. Data yeah. sign first. <laughs> So that's the end of the interview, which I hope you enjoyed. I found the way that Igor spoke was, it was just quite unassuming. But then when you actually listen to it, the advice is really profound. So I hope you did listen properly to it because it was really, really good. And thus, I have some top tips. Number one, open up. Just be your honest self without any filter, trying to cater for different people. And when you do that, it just makes things much easier for you and for them. And everyone can just relax much more. And it's just a really good tip. Two, don't just take any investment. So the first offer that they had, they actually rejected. But by holding out, they got into Techstars and later they had the um, investment from the Russian VC that gave them much more support and just they took investment from people that were aligned with their goals. And I mean, I guess it's really easy for me to say that you should say no to some investors. And actually in practice, it's really hard to do when you haven't got a bunch of different investors giving you options and it does just require some real bravery to reject people if you aren't sure if you'll get another offer. But really try to ensure that your goals are aligned with the investor's goals as much as possible. Number three, don't compare yourself to others. So I don't think I'll ever forget his story of the Indian kid being so happy with the football that they just received so that it can stop kicking around rocks. And yet the first world kid who's just super depressed about the fact that he's got last year's iPhone. And it's just a really true statement and a general flaw in human psychology. Our happiness is very weird thing that is just highly affected by the context of the people around us instead of focusing purely on how lucky we are and what our actual situation is. So we find it very hard to be grateful for the things we have often. So try not to compare yourself to others or feel entitled to things that you have no real business being entitled to. And just chill out a bit and think how much worse things really could be instead of focusing on all the ways that you feel life is unfair on you. Because in the real context of everything, it's probably not that bad. Now, a reminder on books. Igor spoke about the 33 strategies of war and the way of the superior man as his favourite books. And then we also spoke about a book about vulnerability, which I've got the title of now for you, which is The Power of Vulnerability by Bene Brown, which in which she offers a breakthrough course on cultivating vulnerability as a means for leaning into our full spectrum of emotions, the dark and the light. And I have actually heard really good things about this book from other sources, so I'm quite keen to read it myself. And that is a wrap. If you enjoy the show and want to encourage me to be creative and make more episodes just like this, then you can support me at my Patreon. Patreon.com slash growth mindset. So I love making these episodes for you and I would love to dedicate more time to it and to just make the best podcast possible. And with your support, I can do that. Other benefits from becoming a patron will include the chance to ask questions on the show to me or to guests and to suggest episode topics and suggest guests to be on the show. So if you like what I'm doing, send me some sweet supporting love. Or if you think the podcast is just terrible and really needs to improve, you can improve it with your money. Perfect. So head on over to patreon.com slash growth mindset and join the crew from as little as $1. 
You've just listened to an episode of the Growth Mindset Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your preferred app and give me a good rating as these go a really long way. If you are unable to give good feedback right now, try sharing the show with a friend who will, or just wait for the show to improve. If you have any ideas for the show or you just want to chat, then please reach out to me on Twitter at Sam Harris Tweets or Instagram at Sam Jam Snaps. Show notes and other links to topics discussed in the episodes are available at the website, growthmindsetpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening. Give yourself a big hug from me. If you're with a friend, give them a hug as well. And I hope you enjoy your next podcast. And a quick bonus tip where I'm pretty much going to directly quote what Igor said is that doing something that you're passionate about is not a risk. Doing something that you don't want to do in the hopes that you will like it is probably the biggest risk a person can take in their lives. So I'm going to just leave you 30 seconds of silence to yourself at the end of this podcast to just, just think about that statement and how it might apply to you. Right, silence is over. Now, go change your life, people. Woo!